Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 through 19. It's the sermon text. As I say, calling to mind, beginning in verse 8, chapter 12 of Genesis, and then at the end, verses 17 through 19, chapter 22, and really everything that comes in between. Uh, So, uh, in a way, you have to keep in mind uh, the whole of the Abrahamic narrative and what is being said here. This is a summary of that. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah also herself received strength to conceive seed and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky and multitude innumerable as the sand, which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son. Of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And let us pray together. Gracious Savior in heaven, we pray that as we move on in this mighty epistle from a consideration of your glorious priesthood for, I don't know, nine chapters, uh, we pray now that we would look more to the exhortation, the exhortation to have faith. What caused Israel to fall in the wilderness was her unbelief, plain and simple. She did not heed the word of God. Well, might we heed it? Might we learn from Abraham what it is to heed it and share a faith like his? Help us to do so through the preaching. May it become to us a great and a mighty means of grace, though adorned with outward and even contemptible weakness to the human reason. Nevertheless, O God, when we are weak, may we find that you are strong. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we go on with our list, Hebrews chapter 11, beginning as we did with the creation of the world, verse 3, and then very uh, very shortly after that, we have the case of Abel and then Enoch and Noah. And following that, these great historical examples of faith, Abraham is now added. And the list will go on and on up to the time of Christ. To find Abraham here included is no surprise to us for uh, these various reasons. One is because... He simply comes next in the biblical history. Uh, We are aware as we read in the Old Testament that following Noah, uh, there was the case of his three sons. A brief history of theirs briefly given, uh, but only so that it might lead up to the story of Abraham, which becomes the main focus, in fact, of the book of Genesis, beginning in Genesis chapter 12. And so in the new world, the, the land upon which Noah stepped, uh, a major focus of redemptive history as it proceeds is found the life of Abraham. 
And Abraham, as we study his uh, history, which we had uh, occasion to do not too long ago in the evening, we looked at chapters 12 through 22 as we worked through that book. Abraham, uh, to a much higher degree than in the prior figures, for him, faith becomes the cardinal feature of his life. And certainly in those sermons, uh, that is what we saw. And if you were to read chapters 12 through 22, you would see that as well. Faith is the most prominent feature in his life. A study in Abraham is a study in faith, plain and simple. And we see that when we read the beginning and the end, but then also remember every, everything that comes in between. Uh, let me give to you the first of many quotes from Gerhardus Voss. He has just a few pages on Abraham's faith, which is absolutely stunning in his book, uh, Biblical Theology. Uh, I, would, I would encourage you if you have the book to read it. Let me give you some of the best, the best quotes. He says this. Faith was in Abraham's life the chief religious act and frame of mind. His whole life was a school of faith. I think that's a good way of putting it. It, it. it makes us to relate to Abraham in just the way that the New Testament encourages us to do. To see Abraham as a believer like ourselves who had to pass through the world as a pilgrim and who was tested along the way. And we might also add, as we'll notice, who failed many times in, in sometimes uh, very embarrassing ways. Uh, And the sacred history makes no attempt to cover up those facts either. He was a man like us, enrolled in the school of faith. And faith for him was the chief religious act and frame of mind. He was a believer in God first and foremost. And one cannot read the Abrahamic narrative without having this impression very strongly. The centrality of faith to his religion, as he was taught and trained in the school of faith, And as the word of God came to him over and over and over again. And it's for this reason that uh, we see that Abraham is the main Old Testament figure in the New Testament when the New Testament describes to us of what uh, what it is to have faith. Time and again, he is the one whom the writers of the New Testament point to. uh, Whether in Galatians three, Romans four or so many other passages and so to find him here, uh, not only described, but to, descri- be, to be described in some length in contrast to the others is no surprise to us. Abraham, preeminently in the Old Testament, is the man of faith. And I want to divide the sermon like this. I want to first look at uh, the, what we notice in the text uh, about his faith, what he illustrates, and then to notice certain principles we can extract from that. But we also have to remember Sarah. And so as I'm preaching this, don't forget about her either. And she'll come in at the end. We notice, uh, perhaps to our surprise, that Sarah also believed along with her husband, even though that isn't exactly what the narrative says. And I'll deal with that uh, when we get to her. But we have to begin with Abraham here. Abraham is unquestionably the focus. He is the focus of verses 8 through 10. And then he comes in again after Sarah is described in 11 and 12 in her connection with Abraham. There's a summary of faith in verses 13 through 16. He comes in in verses 17 through 19. He is unquestionably the focus. In those verses, we notice uh, four instances of faith. And in particular, of the kind of faith that is being commended to us in Hebrews chapter 11. The first thing we see being said plainly in verse 8 is that he obeyed an unlikely word. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's a good way of summarizing what we read in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4 
and even beyond, uh, well beyond in that Abrahamic narrative beginning in chapter 12 of Genesis, that God called him to go out and he didn't even know where he was going. And God didn't make it entirely clear why he was even calling him there. It was a strange word that came to him. It was an unlikely word. God was calling Abraham to do something he didn't fully understand or comprehend. But the point here is that Abraham believed the word of God. He believed an unlikely word which he did not fully comprehend or understand. In light of this, we find once again a confirmation of our definition of faith. That faith believeth to be true whatsoever the word of God, whatever God revealeth to us in his word from the confession. And then with those three descriptors, trembling at the threatenings, obeying the commands, embracing the promises. Don't so narrow your view of faith to say faith only embraces the promises. No, it trembles at the threatenings and it obeys the commands. By faith, Abraham obeyed the word of God, came to him, and so he did what he was commanded. Why? Because he believed that word. Faith obeys the commands. Just as it embraces the promises. And so what we notice at the outset of Abraham's religious life, and I might slightly adjust Voss's quotation, not the whole of his life as a school of faith, but the whole of his religious life beginning at age 75 when God called him out of um, his homeland into the land of promise. That at the outset of God's dealings with Abraham, faith would form the basis of his religion, faith in God's word. And that is what God was calling Abraham, or what he was requiring, rather, of Abraham. Faith in God's word, however unlikely. He obeyed an unlikely word first. Second, he dwelt in a strange land. Verse 9. Another instance of the kind of faith that he's calling us to. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. This is... A summary of basically the whole of the narrative. When you read the whole of that narrative, you will appreciate what he's summarizing. That Abraham was always wandering. He was dwelling in tents. He passed through the land of promise, but he never possessed it. He was even driven out of it and then back in, then out of it and then back in again. He was a wanderer. One of the things I'll say later, but let me just say it now. He wasn't wandering aimlessly. Though it might have seemed that way. But he was a wanderer. That's something that you have to appreciate about his life. He dwelt in tents. And he did so, it is important for us to see, in the land of promise. Which greatly underscores the reality of what it is to walk by faith and not by sight as Abraham embodied. To do so often requires non-possession of the promise. A point which stands out even more strongly in the case of Abraham because he actually dwelt in the land of promise, yet he did not possess it. He dwelt in what was promised to him as a stranger and a foreigner. And it is about this that it is later said in verses 13 through 16. Let me read again, summarizing not just Abraham, uh, but the others. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embrace them and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. You have to appreciate that as he's saying that they did that as they dwelt in the land of promise. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. 
And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they came out or had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So he's including the others in the same outlook, not just Abraham, but his sons, Isaac, Jacob, and even those who came before him. But the point that he's stressing about all these men, but which we see, especially in the case of Abraham, is that he possessed nothing, nothing in this world. His hands were ever empty as far as uh, uh, land was concerned. Abraham was a man who was promised a kingdom, yet who dwelt in tents. And who, as a result, possessed only that which by faith he could welcome from afar. It's amazing to think that what was promised was seemingly within his grasp. The very land upon which he planted his feet and cast his tents. That was the very land that would not come into his possession or his his descendants for a very long time. And so they lived, he tells us. In the land of promise as though in a foreign land. In fact, not only did they not possess it, but the Canaanites presently possessed the land. And they had to dwell there along with them. And non-possession of that promise, even as that promise was under their feet, so to speak, made the realities and the necessities of faith all the greater in their case. If they could not live by faith, their lives would have been marked by continually continual frustration and animosity, even toward God himself. That is, if they could not content themselves in the promise itself, not the possession, there could be no true happiness, only frustration and discontent. But as it was, they were content, we read, to live as pilgrims and strangers, possessing nothing of what was promised to them, to dwell in the land of promise in tents, because we see next that as they did so, thirdly, They waited for the city which has foundations, verse 10. For he waited. This is why he was content to dwell by faith. He waited. uh, Dwell in tents, I mean. He, He waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That is the reason, and that is the third instance of his faith. Here was the true substance of Abraham's hope, along with Isaac and Jacob and the others. What it was that made him and them content to dwell in tents, even to dwell in the land of promise as though in a foreign land. It was that they set their hope not upon the land, but upon heaven itself. They looked, you might say, beyond beyond even the promise itself. They looked not for an earthly inheritance as Israel would later come to possess, but considered something better and greater, even heaven itself, which is also the point. We find being made in verses 13 through 16, the summary, which I won't read again. The point there is that as pilgrims, they confess that they had no homeland of their own on this earth, not even in the land of promise. To possess the land would not have satisfied their faith. Only heaven could do that. What then was left for them to do as they dwelt in the land of promise, but to wait in faith? Not to see their sons and their grandsons dwell in the land, which they would never do. They all died in faith. But to wait for that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now this is where I come to something I said earlier in advance. 
We discovered that as they wandered through the land as pilgrims and as we are doing through this world, wandering that often seems aimless, we discover it isn't. That as the pilgrim is passing through this world, he is looking for something far greater than he finds in this world. His wanderings are not aimless, beloved. The pilgrim believer is journeying on to the heavenly city. He knows the city he is seeking, the city which God has built, which has foundations, whose maker and builder is God himself. He has set his heart on heaven, and to there he is journeying. And nothing, as I say, nothing in this world could ever satisfy his heart but heaven. And so nothing in this world. That is the the faith and the outlook of the pilgrim. This was the very outlook, in fact, which just before chapter 11... The writer of the Hebrews was commending to this early church. He says to them, in essence, you know, you used used to have this kind of faith. Recall, he says, former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plunderings of your goods, knowing, listen to this, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Exactly what we find in the Pilgrim Fathers. You suffered so much in this world, not aimlessly, not without purpose, but because you knew what awaited you at the end of your trials. And so you set your heart and you set your treasure in heaven, a better and a lasting possession for yourselves in heaven. It is upon this great reward that faith has as its object as we journey as pilgrims through this world. But then fourth. We find at the end of his life, as we read in chapter 22 of the book of Hebrews, the most striking example of his faith. By faith, Abraham offered his son. By faith, Abraham, we read, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, And Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Well, this, again, calls to mind what we read in chapter 22 of Genesis. This was the final test. Abraham was in the school of faith like we. This was the final and the greatest test. And something we notice, which once once again presented a paradox to him. Another strange word of promise, which if he didn't have faith, he never could have solved or understood. For if previously he dwelt in the land of promise as a stranger, In what manner was it really promised to him? A question only faith could answer. Calvin, to be a sojourner seemed contrary to what had been promised. God was presenting a paradox to Abraham in the earlier days. So here he was faced with the same dilemma. For in Isaac himself did the promise of a seed and a multitude reside. Just as we read here, in Isaac your seed shall be called. And it was for this son... That Abraham and his wife Sarah waited for 25 long years. It was uh, in fulfillment of this promise that we find uh, Abraham at times faltering in his faith and even coming up with false solutions, which we could call human works. Human works which are incapable of achieving the righteousness of God or fulfilling the promises of God. The arrangement with Hagar simply wouldn't do. Only through your wife will you bear the son of promise. And at long last, after 25 years of trial, uh, uh, of toiling through many trials, at last Sarah bore him the promised son, Isaac. 
But now God would demand Isaac from his own hand as though to place the very promise in jeopardy. Something which proved yet another sore trial of his faith in the source by far. If you read the, the, the chapter, you discover that it wasn't something that happened right away. It was something that required preparations and then a three-day journey. But what we discover about Abraham is that he was just as ready there to believe and to obey the word of God as he was at the beginning. And so we have yet another and indeed the greatest instance of his faith. So great was his faith that he was able to discern that God's promise would not be extinguished with the death of his son, Isaac. And that if nothing else, God would be able to raise him up again, which he did, in fact, after a figurative sense, as the author tells us. Abraham, we discover in his strong and striking faith, a faith, let us be honest, which astonishes us. Abraham made his faith to rest not upon what he could Comprehend about the promise or the word which came to him. Since God is incomprehensible and his words and his ways are never fully comprehensible to us. Who can fully comprehend the ways and the mind of the Lord? But he made his faith to rest as we see very clearly in those chapters upon the power of God. He recognized that God was able to raise him up. God was able. He was fully conscious of the power of God to perform exactly what he had promised. And this leads me to notice next, as a second major point, major tendencies of Abraham's faith. uh, Extracting certain principles from these four instances and even from the whole of his life. And here I'm borrowing each of these points from Voss's biblical theology. Those few pages I told you about earlier. The first thing we notice connected with what we just saw is the God-centered character of his faith. That's the first Major tendency of Abraham's faith. And corresponding to this is the word of God. The way in which we as believers, something which Hebrews is stressed throughout, relate to God is by relating to his speech. God has been speaking through the ages. He's speaking now at last through his son and through his apostles. The question is, do we have faith? And as we look at Abraham relating to God through his word, we see that his faith was seen time and again to depend upon the word of God as it came to him over and over. The whole of the Abrahamic narrative can be broken up into several episodes. And almost all of those episodes, perhaps all of them, I'm not exactly sure, begins with the phrase and the word of God came to Abraham. And then so proceeds the next trial of his faith. And we're able to see in each instance how it was either that Abraham exercised faith or in certain cases he faltered in his faith. The three most uh, striking episodes, you might say, are found in chapters 12 and 22, which we already read, but also in chapter 15. Chapter 15 is perhaps the most celebrated instance of his faith. The word of God comes to Abraham and we read. Uh, famously in verse six, that he believed in the Lord, it was counted him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham, like us, was justified by faith. A faith which ever rested on the word of God. But let us analyze this point a little more closely by keeping those three instances or incidents in mind. Chapters 12, 15 and 22. In calling Abraham to believe in the bare word of God. And to accept and to even do things that were incredible to the human reason. 
such as to simply go into a foreign land, dwell in tents, to offer and sacrifice his son. What was really being tested in Abraham, the believer, was Abraham's faith in God himself, the God who spoke to him. The question which was being asked of Abraham, the same question which is being asked to us, uh, of us when the word of God comes to us again and again and again is, how do we really feel about God himself? You see, even uh, antecedent to the question, how do we feel about the word of God, is how do we feel about the God who speaks? And that is something that's ultimately revealed in our response and reaction to the word as it comes to us. Is God someone who can be trusted? Is he someone upon whose word we might stake our lives and our very salvation and even our children? You see, that is something that uh, that is being unfolded and tried and tested throughout the whole of the Christian life. The whole of the Christian life is a school of faith, faith in God. It is something that God is always trying and testing, something that Satan is always trying to rob from the believer. Let me give you another uh, another Voss quote. He says there entered into their relationship a personal factor, namely the trustworthiness of God who made the declaration of the promises. Again, it was the God who speaks in whom Abraham believed. So Abraham demonstrates the religious mindset which faith embodies. Nothing less than a total willingness to trust God himself in all that he says and all that he does, even when his actions and his words, his words seem incredibly demanding and incredibly strange and incomprehensible. This is an aspect calling to mind the passage which we did not read, chapter 15, uh, which stands out most strongly there, chapter 15, verse 6, where Abraham's faith is described like this. Let me tell you again what is said there. Abraham, listen carefully to the words, Abraham believed in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you realize that in describing his faith, what is being described there is uh, how he felt about God. That Abraham deemed that the Lord himself was someone who was trustworthy and whose words therefore could be trusted. And perhaps it's even stronger than that. Something like, as Voss translates it, not he believed in the Lord, but, but better, he developed assurance in God. And God counted it to him as righteousness. The more God spoke to him, the more he felt bound by that word to accept it. Not because he could comprehend it. He did not, in the final analysis, make his faith to rest upon the word of God. Since that was a word he could not always understand. But solely because it was God himself who said it. His faith rested upon the Lord. He believed in God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And that is why he believed every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. And so it was we discover in the in the school of faith in which Abraham and we are enrolled that uh, it was faith in God himself. Which Abraham embodied and it was God himself whom he grew to trust more and more throughout his life. It was enough simply for God to say it, for him to believe it, and then to adjust the whole of his life and his outlook as a believer and a pilgrim in this world according to that word. Whatever you say, Lord, so I will do, so I will believe. That's the first major tendency. The center of his religious life was the Lord himself. He was ever relating to the Lord. 
he was ever believing and doing what the Lord required of him. However strange, however unlikely. The second major tendency that we notice about Abraham is the way he spiritualized the promises. This is something Charles Spurgeon tells preachers to do in his book on preaching. He tells us to spiritualize. And it's something that I seek to do always in my preaching. It's something that I hope uh, that you are doing as you read your Bibles as well. Uh, it, it, when I say spiritualize, I mean what, uh, what Voss means and I mean what, uh, what, I, I mean what uh, Spurgeon means. And that isn't that we just allegorize the scripture to mean whatever we want it to mean. Of course, many preachers do that. And that's always the danger. That's called eisegesis. We just read our own understanding into the text. And then there we found our sermons in the text. That isn't what I mean at all. But it is that by faith we discern the true and the proper meaning of the text. We don't dwell on the surface. But faith drives us deeper. And it enables us to extract the richest treasures which are contained in those promises. In fact, you could say that the whole of the New Testament spiritualizes the Old Testament. It is a constant unfolding and discovery of the treasures which were hid in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, which the Jew was unable to comprehend because he lacked faith. But which we also discover as we read our New Testaments, the Jews who had faith did comprehend. They did comprehend the greater things that God was promising in the New Covenant. Now, this is most evident in Abraham and our pilgrim fathers in their outlook on the land itself. A major point that Israel missed. Abraham, uh, did I say Abraham? I meant Israel. I think I said Israel. Israel missed it. Abraham didn't. It didn't. Abraham dwelt in the land as a foreigner. He didn't possess it. But he was able to spiritualize that promise. He lived by faith. Israel came to possess the land many years later. And she treated the land as though that's all there was. The fullness and the totality of the promise was realized in their existence. And then listen uh, to what or read what the New Testament has to say about them. They lacked faith. They missed the true significance and the true meaning of the land. But Abraham's spirituality, the spirituality of his faith, is most evident in his outlook on the land itself in which he dwelt, which uh, we could read in verse 10 and verses 13 through 16. Uh, though I won't read them again. But that's the point which is being made there. The question uh, which we have is how did he and these others, Isaac and Jacob for instance, view themselves as strangers and pilgrims even as they dwelt in tents in the land of promise? The answer is that they comprehended that what was promised to them was something even greater than the thing itself. They spiritualized the promise. They recognized that the land was only a type and a shadow of the heavenly Canaan. And so they were able to look beyond Israel or their descendants, earthly inheritance of the promise. To the greater realities that were contained in that promise. And they looked not simply beyond the promise, as I said before, but they looked to the promise and they found such truths and such treasures there. They comprehended in the land itself a type of something eternal and lasting, a lasting city which has foundations, whose builder is God himself. The very word forever, so often found in the promise, forced them to see this, that God was promising something, something to them that was not earthly and temporal. It encouraged them to look beyond this world into the glories and the joys of heaven and everlasting life there. For all the transience and impermanence of this life, by faith they were assured of something better. 
Looking beyond this world to the permanence and the eternity of heaven. Again, let me read verse 10. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. Verse 16. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. What is being said there is not that they disregarded the promise. They said uh, that they said, in essence, we're not interested in the land, but we're interested in heaven. That would be to set the promise aside. But rather that they more fully comprehended what the promise represented and what was being promised to them. And they more fully did so than Israel later did. That contained within the promise was the promise of an eternal city. An everlasting one. And it was unto that that they were journeying. It is equally the spiritualizing tendency. The tendency, spiritualizing tendency of faith, which is, which enables us to see Christ in the old covenant. To look to the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices and to find him there. And to realize that those things were never an end unto themselves, even though the Jew of the Old Testament treated them as though they were. And in fact, the whole of the book of Hebrews, you might say, is dedicated to dispelling this error. Once again, in essence, he's saying, I want you to spiritualize. I want you to look deeper and to recognize the true significance that is found in the priesthood and the blood which was shed under the old covenant. Was not that atonement might be found there, but that you might look for a better and a perfect sacrifice, which is found under the new covenant. Spiritualize the promises. That is what. True faith does. That is the kind of faith that the fathers had. Abraham was promised a son, a seed, and a multitude. And yet he looked forward not to the formation of Israel, but he, as Jesus tells us, looked forward to his day and was glad. He looked forward to the promise of a redeemer and of a church and of a new covenant. He spiritualized, not after a fashion that suited him. Again, Uh, Let me not be misunderstood. He did not allegorize to make the word suit his own purposes, but he spiritualized after a fashion that suited the promise itself. And by faith, he was able to comprehend and to discern the true meaning and the true significance. And thus was able to bring out the best treasures which were contained within the promise. But then thirdly, we notice. And I've already passed the hour, but on we go. We had a baptism. I still have more to say. The psychology of faith, something uh, which is evident throughout this history, as recorded in Genesis 20, 12 through 22, something which we are bound to notice and to ask ourselves uh, about Abraham. Remember, I, I said that uh, in the Abrahamic narrative, we also notice as many failings. In Abraham, we see something that we later see in his wife, namely a mixture of faith and unbelief. That's what Voss means when he speaks of the psychology of faith. We can't help but notice this when we think of Abraham. Mixture of faith and unbelief. Something which stands out very strongly in his life. And we cannot think of his faith and not think of this. Especially his faith here in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews is presented as an assurance in the promise. In fact, he even uses the word assurance in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them. Abraham was assured of these things. That's what enabled him to walk forward as a pilgrim by faith. And yet we are also conscious of the fact that he had many failings 
and his faith often faltered. And so what do we make of that? Well, in order to uh, solve this riddle, so to speak, how is it that we possess an assurance and yet often fall back into doubt? We need to appreciate Voss is saying, as we see in Abraham, the psychology of faith. We see Abraham at times believing and other, other times doubting the promise, like his wife Sarah. We even see him believing only to ask for a greater assurance, as in chapter 15. He developed an assurance in the Lord, verse 6. A few verses later, he says, Lord, how may I know? Developed an assurance, he sought an assurance. All in the same episode. Let us notice the psychology of faith. Voss, from Genesis 15, we learn that there was at one and the same time in Abraham a relatively mature faith and an intense desire to have the insufficiency of his faith relieved by further assurance. He believed, he was assured, yet he sought a greater assurance. Doesn't that describe your own experience? Voss goes on. Explaining why this is, and then we'll come to Sarah. There is a fine psychological observation here. Faith and a desire for more faith frequently go hand in hand. The reason is that through faith we lay hold upon God and in grasping the infinite object, the utter inadequacy of each single act of appropriation immediately reveals itself in the very act. Every time we lay hold of God by faith, however strong our assurance, we are conscious Not of the greatness of our faith, but of the greatness of the one we come to possess by faith. And in that very moment, Voss says, we notice in Abraham and in ourselves the inadequacy of that faith and a desire for more faith. And that is a good segue, if I can do so briefly now, into our consideration of his wife, since the the author here presents them together, Abraham and his wife. And since that is the aspect which is most evident in her life, the psychology of faith. The simple assertion here is that by faith, verse 11, she conceived and that she was unable to conceive the promised son until she came to a point of faith herself. But the question which we have is, when did she come to possess this faith? Since in the narrative, she stands out as one who doubted rather than believed. In fact, I don't think it is ever said that Sarah believed, though it is said of Abraham many times. Sarah would, it would seem, stand out to us as a doubter, not a believer. That would seem to be her testimony. And yet we find that her faith is what is celebrated here. And what do we make of that? Well, I think we have to remember, as I say, the psychology of faith we just noticed. Here is even uh, stronger for us to observe. We read here that she received strength to conceive the promised son because she judged him faithful who had promised. Verse 11. The question once more is when she did so. And here we must remember what was said in Genesis chapter 18, which I want to briefly summarize and read a few verses since we didn't read any of that in the scripture reading. Genesis chapter 18. There we read that the Lord comes with his companions to Abraham's house and he indicates that in a year's time the son would be born. And so the promise was just about to come to fulfillment. But before he does so... He shows an interest, not so much in Abraham, who had been the focus to this point, but in Sarah herself. Verse nine. He said to they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And only after that does he offer the promise. I will certainly return to you according to the time of life and behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And it says Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now it was, it is evident by this that the Lord wanted Sarah to hear this. 
He wanted her to have faith like Abraham. He was inviting her to listen as he knew she would in order for her to hear the promise and come to faith herself. Indeed, he even makes her the focus of the promise. He says, Sarah will have a son. And so now she was personally involved and invested not only in the promise, but in the Lord himself. And as though to underscore how unlikely this was, it is said in verse 11 that Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Another unlikely and strange word. Who could possibly believe it? But we've come to expect that anyways, given what we've seen about Abraham. Look at verse 12. This is the perplexing verse. Sarah hears the word of God. We don't read she believes. We read she disbelieves. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord also being old. She is confronted with an unlikely word and she disbelieves. What we notice, therefore, is not her faith, but her unbelief. The things seemed ridiculous. And on account of what we read here, our difficulty emerges based upon Hebrews chapter 11. Where was her faith that is celebrated there? Well, we aren't finished. Verses 13 and 14, this is what we read. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. The Lord is responding directly to Sarah. He is, in fact, uh, rebuking her for her unbelief. And he's calling her to have faith in the Lord. And do you notice as he does so, what is the focus? Not on, not upon what man can do or what seems likely to man, since the Lord ruled that out in the case of these two old lovers. But only, is anything too hard for the Lord? Verse, verse 14. Obviously not. And it was upon that thought that the Lord left Sarah to contemplate and to reflect whether this child might indeed come as the Lord had promised. And it is upon this that we know, uh, or shortly after this at least, that Sarah did conceive and a year later bore a son. And based upon Hebrews 11, we know how it was she came to conceive this son. It was that she too came to believe the promise. This word which the Lord left with her by this, Abraham or Sarah waited and pondered and thus overcame her doubts and came to a point of faith. By which she was now able to play her part conceiving a son. In other words, you see, God answers her objection. And perhaps not at first, but eventually she came to accept this. That nothing was too difficult for the Lord. And we know that she did because it was impossible for her to conceive but by faith. But you say, what of her doubts? Well, again, those didn't go away either. She was one like us, a believer who had her doubts. But the point is, now she was a believer too. She came to share in the faith of her husband. And the testimony of her faith is tremendous. It reminds the Jews, as he says in verse 12 of Hebrews 11, how they came to be. Not by works, but by the faith of Abraham and Sarah. In the case of both, their doubts were resolved and became strong faith only by considering what God can do. In other words, by asking the question posed here, is anything too hard for the Lord? Can he not surely do what he has promised? Exactly what we find present in her husband's faith, as highlighted in verses 17 through 19. He considered that God was able to raise his son. And so faith we see rests upon divine promises, and even those rest upon God himself. 
Never was the promise made to depend upon what man could do or contribute. It was always a matter of what God could do. The promise itself, together with the circumstances of its fulfillment, in the case of these two people, Abraham and Sarah, brought this aspect into clear focus. There was nothing that they could do to bring about the promise. And thus all that was left for these two people, husband and wife, to do was to believe and to accept that nothing is too hard for the Lord. To develop a strong assurance in God himself, resting content that whatever he promised, he could do without any difficulty. But returning to what is said in Hebrews chapter 11, we are able to see what all these saints held in common. Namely, a faith in God which brought them through this world as pilgrims. That was true of Abraham, it was true of Sarah. And better still, uh, we could add, not only which brought them through this world, but which brought them into heaven itself. Which, uh, as we will read at the end of this long list of believers, is where Christ has gone before us to prepare a place for us. And so the testimony of Hebrews 11 is simply, let us follow them there. Let us share in their faith, the faith of pilgrims. Let us make our faith the rest uh, upon the word of God and even upon God himself, the God who speaks. And let us be content with nothing which we find or come to possess in this world, but only that which is promised to us. As he says in chapter 10, for you have need of endurance so that you have done so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while. And he was coming will come and tarry not. Amen. And let us now come to the table.